Uh, Well, for readers of the chapter you heard read, Mark chapter 10, after the self-confidence of the rich ruler who thought he could do what was needed to gain eternal life, and after the self-interest of Jesus' disciples James and John seeking for themselves the positions of power and prominence when Jesus comes to what they anticipate will be his glorious reign, there is something refreshing about this blind beggar Bartimaeus' appeal to Jesus for mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, he cries, a cry that springs from his desperate longing for sight, a need beyond human help. And he doesn't bargain, he just entrusts himself to Jesus' goodness. It's direct, even rude in its insistence, like a little child. And if you doubt that, come and stand with me at the foyer at 11 and watch the children interrupting their parents' conversations. It happens all the time. Mummy, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, mummy. Or daddy, I need to go. Daddy, I need to to go. And they keep on at them until they get a response. Well, Bartimaeus is like that. He refuses to be shushed. People's attempts to shut him up just make him louder and more urgent. He's focused like a child on the one person he thinks can help. And there's also something wonderful in Jesus' response. He stops, call him, he says. And when Bartimaeus comes, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Now think about that because Jesus is the man, isn't he? He's the man. He's got his band of followers around him. The crowds are there to see him. Bartimaeus is calling him the son of David. That's God's promised ruler over Israel. He's the king. And Jesus has spoken of himself as the son of man, the one to whom God will entrust universal and eternal rule. Jesus knows better than his disciples and the crowd who he is, his greatness, And he has no doubt about his place in God's plan. He's the man, and he's a man with a mission, isn't he? Jericho, which is about 35 kilometres from Jerusalem, is the last stop on the pilgrim route to Jerusalem. And Jesus is passing through Jericho as the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem that he's been deliberately taking since Peter confessed him as Christ back in Caesarea Philippi, Mark 8. And this is a journey Jesus knows will end in his death. And so he's walking towards the climax of his ministry, of his life on earth, yet he stops and he calls Bartimaeus. And then he asks him this most wonderful question, a question Bartimaeus, a blind beggar perhaps hoped but probably didn't expect to hear. What do you want me to do for you? Here is Jesus, the son of David, the promised king, the one who will soon be welcomed into Jerusalem as king with the words of Psalm 118, Hosanna, the song of the coming victorious king on the lips of the crowd. The one who knows, as I've said, that he is the glorious son of man. Yet with that question, Jesus is placing himself and his power at the service of a beggar, 
a needy, insistent beggar. And Jesus knows the answer to the question. Bartimaeus' need is obvious. But Jesus doesn't treat Bartimaeus as an object, a photo op, a means to show his power, as if he's the celebrity and it's all about him with Bartimaeus and his need, just a prop in the parade of his greatness. No. In that moment of conversation, it's all about Bartimaeus. And the question gives Bartimaeus agency and dignity as Jesus engages with him as a person, not just another demand on his time or power. You know, I love that question and I love the person who asks it. Jesus has everything. He is everything. He really is the star of the show of creation with the big agenda. But he stops to deal personally with needy, dirt poor Bartimaeus and more to serve him by meeting his deeply felt need, to satisfy Bartimaeus's longing for sight, for wholeness, to have his world flooded again with light. Jesus is humble, thoughtful, kind and, yes, powerful, with a power that goes beyond human possibility. Go, says Jesus to him, your faith has saved you, and immediately he could see and follow Jesus on the road. Your faith has saved you. Jesus is saying that Bartimaeus was right to put his trust in him, to believe that he would be interested, to believe that he would listen, to believe he would be merciful to a needy stranger, to believe he would be able to do really what only God can do, to give sight with a word to the blind. You read this short story, and even if you're unfamiliar with Jesus, you want it to be true, don't you? Not just for the happy ending, but at a deeper level. In a world where self-interested leadership that uses people to promote its own agendas, where power is so often expressed in violence, and the poor are forgotten, marginalised, silenced, you want to think, don't you, that there is a power... That serves. Someone you can trust because he is kind and good, who gives dignity to the marginalised, who can undo the wounds and disabilities that exclude and impoverish, who can satisfy our longing to be whole for a world restored. Our longings, not just for sight, but the longings we all have for meaning, for love in our loneliness for peace in our anxiety about the world. If we let ourselves feel the goodness of what is going on between Jesus and Bartimaeus, this is a story we want to be true. And yet many of us find it hard to believe it, or at least to have full confidence in it. Uh, Many of us, perhaps you, perhaps your friends, have been conditioned to think that the Gospels are kind of made-up stories with details like Bartimaeus' name, for example, just added to give a bit of colour, you know, the appearance of having really happened. Or we've, we've kind of been trained to think that any story with a miracle is by definition unbelievable and healing a blind man immediately with a word and a touch 
Well, that really is a miracle and therefore we think unbelievable. Oh, and many of us come to the story assuming that even if it was good for them back then, it's all in the past and that Jesus is long gone. And so we hear the story, but we are left with our longing for this to be true, unfulfilled, disappointed. Well, I want you to know that as well as being good, this story is also true. So let me address those objections to its truth. Uh, did you know that only three participants in Jesus' miracles are named in the gospel stories as a miracle? Jairus, whose daughter was raised from death, Lazarus, also raised from death, and Bartimaeus. A name explained, uh, Mark explains to his non-Hebrew speaking readers as meaning a son of Timaeus. See, giving Bartimaeus' name is an unusual detail. A detail, for example, not repeated in Matthew and Luke's parallels. The gospel writers are actually very sparing in giving names in these stories. Now, why? Well, Richard Borkham, a professor of New Testament at St Andrews, argues in his book Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, which is a great book if you're interested, that Bartimaeus is named because at the time of Mark's writing, Bartimaeus was part of the early Christian movement and well known in the circles in which the story of his healing was preserved. In fact, was most likely a source of the story. So Bartimaeus is not named to give an appearance of truthfulness to a made-up story, but to allow fact-checking by the first hearers. And the naming of living witnesses, living sources, was actually consistent with the way Ancient historians did their work. So this is uh, Borkham. The ancient historians such as Thucydides, Polybius, Josephus and Tacitus, amazingly all on Google if you're interested, uh, they were convinced that true history could be written only while events were still within living memory. And they valued as their sources the oral reports of direct experience of the events by involved participants in them. And so as a consequence for them and for the ancient, eyewitness testimony was the essential means to reach back into the past. You see, naming Bartimaeus speaks of Mark's commitment to recording true testimony to what Jesus said and did from those who experienced it. And it gave his contemporaries an opportunity to confirm from Bartimaeus what Mark had written. And Matthew and Luke omit his name from their treatment of the event because they're writing later and by that time Bartimaeus is no longer on the scene, no longer there to consult. So Mark is giving eyewitness testimony his first readers could check. But some will say, well, whatever the conventions of ancient histories, this story contains an account of a miracle and a miracle story is by definition unbelievable. And the argument goes like this. Miracle stories can't be believed because a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature and those laws are established by universal and uniform experience. So no testimony is powerful enough to make us believe their operations being overturned in any particular reported miracle. 
Now, that's an old argument. It goes back to a bloke called David Hume, 1777. But many still use his argument to reject out of hand testimony to a miracle having happened or to cast sufficient doubt on their occurrence to rob them of their evidentiary power. And actually, you probably don't realise that when you are reading accounts of miracles, you're discounting them, not feeling their power. You're a child of our age. But Hume's position uh, is a position that's actually been a subject to much criticism over the centuries. And you can get a rebuttal of it in that uh, book... uh, Oh, in the book in the outline, A Defence of Miracles. So some of the arguments against it go like this. Uh, Firstly, Hume's position is a circular argument. So this is C.S. Lewis. Now, of course, we must agree with Hume that if there is absolutely uniform experience against miracles, if, in other words, they have never happened, why then they never have? Unfortunately, we know the experience against them to be uniform only if we know that all the reports of them are false. And we can know all the reports of them to be false only if we know already that miracles have never occurred. In fact, we're arguing in a circle. That's right. You see, you can't come saying miracles never happen because all the reports are false and then dismissing reports of miracles because you know miracles never happen. That is entirely circular. So... You cannot know all the reports of miracles are false beforehand. You actually can only know a a report's false or true after you've looked at the individual miracle and weighed the evidence for it. There are other criticisms of Hume's position, which really is saying you should always believe what is most probable from universal human experience without weighing the evidence for any particular event. But that doesn't work. You see, we are often dealing with real events that are improbable, a trivial example, like rolling three sixes on uh, three dice at once, which has the odds of 1 to 216, but it actually happens. So, for example, should those who won the lotto the other night refuse to take their winnings because they dismiss the event of their winning as too improbable to have happened? It was highly improbable, but it happened. Oh, and Hume also believed that evidence from the past actually can't determine the present. So in his rejections of miracles out of hand, making laws of nature, which are summaries of numerous past observations prescriptive of what could happen, he's actually arguing against himself. Reports of miracles can't be dismissed out of hand. The evidence for each must be weighed to see if it's compelling, the best description of what has happened. Mark, by naming Bartimaeus, is saying he was actually still around and he could be consulted about what had happened to him. And in Bartimaeus's case, if Jesus is the person he says he is, the Son of God, for whom nothing is too hard, then it's more than probable that he can do things differently outside of regular expectation for his purposes. And that brings us to the third point. The reason perhaps you might think this story is irrelevant to your life, that whatever we believed happened back then, it doesn't really matter because it was back then and Jesus is not around now. And I guess that gets to the heart of the issue, doesn't it? Well, what can be said about that? Well, we are here this evening 
because Christians believe that is not the case, that the gospel stories are not about someone who is dead and gone, but about someone who lives, that as surely as Jesus heard Bartimaeus say, I want to see, he hears us. He will hear you. You see, Christians believe that Jesus lives. The same person, kind, in fact, kinder, more gracious than you can imagine, for we now know the full extent of his kindness. He lives now as someone who has given his life as a ransom for many on the cross, dying there for his enemies, for a world that rejected his rule to bring freedom from judgment and death. And so there is a depth of graciousness and love in Jesus that is hard to fathom. Oh, and he lives powerful, more powerful than death itself, risen from the dead, never to die again. More We believe we have good grounds for believing that Jesus lives. The testimony of the eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection confirmed in our present experiences. See, Jesus' followers did see him die. They knew he was dead. Oh, they, the women in particular who followed him, saw him buried. And they say they found his tomb empty and then they met him, Jesus, in person, alive in the body in which he died. And their testimonies in the Gospels and letters, especially of Paul, that come from the lifetime of those who knew Jesus. And that is testimony that one way or another, you even today have to make sense of, for it exists in history. There is a New Testament and a Christian church. And it's existed from the earliest Christian movement. And the best explanation for this testimony is actually their own. That in saying Jesus is risen, they are reporting the ways Jesus convinced them he was alive after he'd been killed. Alive in the body in which he died by appearing to them. Convinced them by appearing to them. Being able to be touched by them, eating with them, speaking with them. Now, if you want to know more about that, well, read an end of the gospel, maybe John or Luke, or or come and talk. And if you've never really engaged with their witness, you should. For Jesus being alive from the dead means he spoke the truth about what he could do and, yes, about our future. The Jesus we meet in this story of Bartimaeus lives And believing that changes the way you hear the story. It's actually talking of someone real. It it means you can hear this story perhaps hoping that the Jesus who lives, this same kind, powerful Jesus, will ask you that same question. What do you want me to do for you? And I'd like to say to you this evening, I really would like to say to you this evening that if you call on this risen Jesus for mercy, for help in your need, he will say the same to you. What do you want me to do for you? I would really like to say that. But actually, I can't. I can't because Jesus is more compassionate and more powerful than you and I can fathom.
And in his compassion and power, he hasn't authorised those who share his gospel to promise that, that he will say to you, what do you want me to do for you? Because he has actually authorised his gospel preachers to promise you something better. Forgiveness of sin to all who repent and believe in him. This is what the risen Jesus said to those he first sent out with the gospel, the good news that he's died for sin and risen again. He said to them, this is what's written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. See, Jesus' messengers are sent to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in his name, that is, on his authority. And to repent is to say, you're not the boss, Jesus is. And so actually, me saying to you tonight that Jesus will do for you whatever you ask him, in our entitled age, would probably just frustrate that life-giving repentance because it can be so easily twisted to make the gospel all about us. Present Jesus not as the king who graciously serves in saving, but as the servant of people who think they are kings and queens. If I were to say that, it might suggest that it's our wishes that should be fulfilled, that we can be people who think we can stay in charge even when dealing with Jesus and just give him directions. But to repent is to say Jesus is in charge and we are in the wrong and are wrong when we do not listen to him and do what he says. And to believe is to believe both what the gospel says of Jesus, that he died for our sins and was buried and that he's been raised from death and is now Lord with authority to forgive and judge all. And on that basis, to believe his promises of forgiveness and the gift of his spirit to us now. To all who repent and believe, the Lord Jesus, who has authority to judge of each of us, says he will give forgiveness. Now, some of you, maybe lots of you, might be a little disappointed at that, you know, wondering how being forgiven is better than Jesus doing for you what you would ask. I mean, forgiveness seems so intangible, a religious word for many of us without much substance. How could being promised forgiveness be better than Jesus saying he will deal with your real felt needs, whether that's loneliness or financial stress or your chronic illness or your grief sake? at not having children, whatever the need on your heart. Now, the Lord Jesus will be compassionate and kind to those who cry out to him. But if you think that being promised you'll have those needs met, being promised that Jesus will say to you, what do you want me to do for you, is better than being promised forgiveness, then you have minimised how messed up you and the world are. You've minimised what Jesus came to do when he came preaching that the kingdom of God had come near in himself and his ministry and you have minimised the power, the good, the joy 
of being reconciled to the living God. Let me expand on that. You see, we and our world are messed up. Think about Bartimaeus. This man who had the joy of regaining sight of a world of light would soon, all too soon, be enveloped in darkness again, won't he? Lose his sight in the darkness of death, darkness without hope of light. And that will be true for you, whatever your longing. No matter how satisfied your longings might be in this life, you will lose all in death. And death is not just the event that ends our lives. Death is the condition we live under that characterises every person. We are all mortal. Death's tentacles reach into every part of life, sometimes dramatically in war, sometimes quietly, as we start thinking about whether we too will end up in the nursing home, like our parents and grandparents. See, death means that we will leave behind all We have laboured so hard to achieve, lose all that we love so dearly and death reaches forwards into our lives now in fear and grief. Death, the reward of our sin, of our rebellion against the God who alone has life in himself, characterises us all our lives and that is pretty messed up. And think again of Bartimaeus. And what he saw with his newly gained sight, he opens his eyes and what does he see? The harsh oppression of the Romans. Greed, while others are sitting begging, lining the streets. Oh, he'll see weeping at funerals. He'll see the proud determination of the religious to get their own way, even if it meant taking the life of the one who had given him sight. And that's pretty messed up too, isn't it? And what do we see? With the same sight, you turn on the news, there's violence in our nations and in our homes. Oh, houses selling for over a million dollars and people living in cars. Oh, some see people debased in online pornography or objects to cover. See people's hearts broken by faithlessness. See around us, what do we see in our own lives? Well, let me suggest anger, lust, lies, pride, greed, Unconcern for neighbours. You know, I could go through the commandments tonight. I could remind you, for example, that the Lord Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to our neighbours, ancestors do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. You're thinking, I'm okay there. But Jesus says, I tell you, everyone who's angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Ever been angry with someone? Reckoned them a fool? Oh, and Jesus says that this rebellion is not superficial, out-of-character slip-up. No, it's deep-seated in our wills that it's from our hearts that come Evil thoughts, murders, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, false testimonies, slands. Oh, I could go through the ten the way Jesus understands them. But I'll leave you to fill in the gaps of what there is to be seen in your life.
Because our lives and world are messed up. Messed up by our own rebellion against God's rule, though we can be reluctant to see it. That's right. We can be so focused on our own lives, on getting our own way, on our pleasures and achievements, so much creatures of the moment, so much deceived by the world's propaganda about its virtue, its promotion of itself, that we are blinded to how messed up we and the world are. Now, do you think I'm exaggerating about that? Let me give you an example. Take the way the world justifies the retailing of porn, which I'm told takes up more bandwidth on the net than Twitter, Amazon and Facebook combined. Not a small thing. I've been reading Louise Perry's book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. Now, it's not a Christian, she's not a Christian, but it's a great read. And in one of her chapters, she outlines the way the porn industry has justified its activities by claiming those who participated in it were doing it voluntary as they, voluntarily as they pursued sexual liberation, often trotting out its stars to claim that. And so Perry gives the example of Linda Lovelace, who was the star of Deep Throat and whose real name was Linda Borman. Now, she was toured around England saying things like this, quote, to be honest with you, it makes me so mad that sex films are called obscene when other movies are so full of slaughter and rated so that kids can see them. What kids should learn is that sex is good and then there wouldn't be so many neurotics in the world. She's a Freudian, right? I mean, you're only here once, so enjoy life. But Linda Borman later wrote a biography in which she said of her acting, I have never been so frightened and disgraced and humiliated in my life. I felt like garbage. I engaged in sex acts in pornography against my will to avoid being killed. Now that's just one example, but it's a story repeated by lots of other porn stars and you can read about that in Perry. See, we live in a world where many respectable men get pleasure from that fear and humiliation and others justify it in terms of freedom, liberation and still others cynically make billions from it and that is messed up. And do you think the reality gets as much publicity as the lie that keeps making the porn moguls money? If our eyes were open. We would see a world, our lives, ensnared in rebellion against God, in the human determination to set aside God's good law to do what pleases us, what seems right in our own eyes, and to give our loyalty to philosophies and idols of our own making, which in the end impoverish and destroy us. We'd see a mess we cannot fix and a death and a judgment we cannot avoid. And Jesus didn't come into this world just to tinker at the edges, to be like a good fairy bestowing personal happiness on this or that person by fulfilling their wishes. He came to do more, so much more. He came, remember, preaching the kingdom, the promised reign of God, the time when God would act to bring an end to all rebellion against his rule, the time when there would be no longer injustice or sickness or death, 
when creation would be renewed and there would be joy without grief. You heard of that time in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. (coughs) Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become a pool, the thirsty land springs. And joy and gladness, it says, will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. See, Jesus came to bring that reign, to bring it by being established as the king of that kingdom through his victory over sin and death, his victory over sin, our determination to do away with God from our lives, seen in his crucifixion especially. Oh, and his victory over death, his victory by his death at the hands of those who rejected his rule and then his resurrection. That is a comprehensive victory. And while Jesus waits for the end, when the fullness of his triumph is revealed in the removal of all opposition to his rule and every knee will bow to him, he offers forgiveness. And in offering forgiveness to all who repent and believe, He is offering a share in that kingdom. He is actually opening heaven's door to us. See, when we talk of Jesus forgiving our sin, we're saying much more than Jesus will make you feel better if you're feeling guilty. Although to know you are justly reckoned guilty, whatever you feel before God, for what you have done and then to know you're forgiven is joy. But Jesus is offering more. In forgiving now all who do turn to him and believe his gospel, actually Jesus gives us peace now with the living God, peace with the just judge who sees all, who hears all, who knows all and who is rightly angry with us. He gives us peace with that God through forgiveness. And with that peace, he gives us everything. He gives us confidence now of God's help that he'll hear us, confidence of the living God's fatherly help, of his fatherly love at work in all things for us, even in our needs. Oh, and he gives us hope in all our circumstances, even in the nursing home, hope of resurrection and forgiving us for all our rebellion against God Jesus writes our certificate of citizenship in that kingdom. He guarantees our right to belong there then when he, the living king, is revealed in glory, when all the mess is dealt with and sorrow and sighing flee away forever. You might hear the true story of Bartimaeus' healing with that Wonderful question spoken by the Lord of all to this needy beggar. What do you want me to do for you? And think, that is what I want to hear Jesus say to me. No, Jesus in his gospel is saying something better to you now. He is saying, I am the king, God's forever ruler who has the authority to forgive your sin, all your sin, to give the forgiveness of God, the forgiveness of the final day of the last and just judgment. 
I've got that authority, he says, and I will forgive your sin, all your sin, if you will repent and believe his gospel. That is, if you will turn away from living as the ruler of your own life and turn to the living Lord, Jesus, to live to do his will. And if you call out to him for forgiveness, asking him for the mercy that will cover over the offence of all the wrong you have done, call out to him as Bartimaeus did like a little child, focused on Jesus as the only one who can meet your need and not being put off by those who will tell you that that's just a little inappropriate or a little zealous or whatever. See, you call out to him and you will find Jesus to be the kind, compassionate and mighty saviour Bartimaeus did, met. And Jesus will do for you what he has promised. He will forgive you. He will give you peace with the living, just God. He will give you a place in his kingdom. And on the day, he will raise you from the dead, for he has conquered death. And like Bartimaeus, in having Jesus' promises confirmed, you will have found a Lord worth following through the death of daily repentance, of daily denying yourself to do his will, worth following to resurrection life. Now, if you're a believer, I hope you know that. The rich privilege of being forgiven, which only Jesus, the King of Judge of the last day, can give. Know that with forgiveness, the Lord is actually giving you everything. So you never tire, whatever is happening in your life, of reckoning yourself blessed, as saying with David, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven, whose sins are covered, blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. I hope you never tire of saying you are blessed and you never undervalue your forgiveness by Jesus as the great gift of the gospel to you. The story of Bartimaeus' healing is wonderful. Wonderful because it's true. This is the way Jesus, the Lord of all, the glorious Son of Man who has a universal and eternal rule, is kind, compassionate, mighty to bring light in darkness, wholeness to a marred and broken world. And the good you sense in this story in seeing Jesus in his interaction with his beggar is real and it is found in no one else. For no one else has the authority of the son of David, the son of man. No one else has given his life as a ransom for many, for you no one else can forgive and raise you from the dead. Faith in him saves and he is worth following. Now, if you don't know that for yourself and you want to know more, well, Andy's running Hope Explored and later on he'll be running Simply Christianity where you go through a life of Jesus and you get to ask questions. You get to know Jesus from his word. So if you want to know more, come and talk. Talk to Andy. Oh, and if you do know the good of being forgiven, if you know, like Bartimaeus, whose name is recorded by Mark 
so he could keep bearing testimonies, community to the good Jesus had done to him, to his gracious kindness and might. If you do know that, well, you also know, like Bartimaeus, that it is a good worth witnessing to. So set aside, if you're not confident in that, set aside these coming Sunday afternoons to come and be taught how you can have good conversations about Jesus by Helen. Because everyone needs to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive and to bring us into his eternal kingdom where sorrow and sighing are replaced by joy. Everyone needs to know that. For everyone's life is messed up by sin and everyone dies. But Jesus forgives and he raises us to his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel which you have preserved and you have brought to us and we pray in your mercy we would believe it and believing it, know Jesus as he is, kind, compassionate, humble and powerful to save. In Jesus' name, amen.